When life as you know it is flipped upside down, we struggle to make sense of it all. Why would a good God allow this to happen? Hi, I'm Sherry Pilkington, your host of Finding God in Our Pain. In early 2018, the deepest questions of my life erupted when I unexpectedly lost my husband of 32 years. Since then, I've searched the heart of God for what he has to say about pain and suffering. In this podcast, we'll discover how God enters into our pain, shepherds us through our darkest valley, and out into the green pastures once again. I'll bring you firsthand stories from women who will allow us into their authentic struggle, along with professional advice from experts, counselors, and others who can speak to what it looks like to navigate pain. Join me as we discover God's answers to the deepest cries of our shattered heart. Today's show is with missionary Alan Crookham. He is the executive director of Found Ministries, an international missions organization that places a priority on serving frontline ministers living in harsh conditions, sacrificing everything for Jesus. He has a podcast, Revival Carriers. He interviews missionaries, ministers, and other incredible people as they share amazing testimonies that will encourage the heart and build faith. And I'm just going to be transparent here for a second. At times when the Lord asks me to consider allowing him to work in a certain portion of my life, my first question to him is often, Lord, what will it cost me? I know that reveals my level of immaturity in Christ, but I'm okay with that because the Lord has never shamed me or rejected me in my maturing process. But following after Christ will cost us something. It is the constant dying to self, the peeling away of our self-constructed safety nets, redefining what freedom and love really mean. So my interest in talking with Alan about who God is in our pain is because for me, missionaries have clearly put their comfort, their relationships, and literally their lives on the line every day. They sacrifice access to adequate health care, comforts of Western living as I know it, language and culture barriers are there, and the toughest one for me is that the safety of their families can be in jeopardy on a regular basis. If you've ever listened to the voice of the martyrs, you'll see that sharing the news of who Christ is indeed does cost them their life, the lives of their children, their spouse, and those whom they love deeply. I wanted to know what keeps a missionary going back into extreme places, into harsh, unstable, violatal conditions. Why in the world would anyone continually put themselves in this position? What's the payoff when it costs them so much? Alan gave me a new level of understanding, a glimpse into the heart of a missionary. First, he made a distinction between a vacationary and a missionary. He shares some great supernatural experiences, shares his thoughts on why no one will be able to say they did not know about Christ, no matter where they live. And he even tells of the time he has on when he was on the brink of being stoned to death, when a misunderstanding amongst the mob broke out and he was able to get away. I feel sure you'll be as captivated by this conversation as I was. Thank you, Alan, for joining me today. I am excited to hear about your ministry that you and your wife have. And I am particularly interested in this conversation because when we look at this through the lens of pain and suffering, to me, I feel like missionaries voluntarily put themselves in extreme situations. They're in foreign countries, laws they do not, maybe they're not familiar with, language barriers. I feel like they're always at risk. Is that a fact? Is that a true statement? Uh, Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be on your podcast. But I would say yes and no, because there are two different kinds of missionaries. And in reality, a lot of people don't know this because 
when they see missionaries, the, the idea is, is what you're saying, that they put themselves at these huge risks and it's this big dangerous thing, which sometimes it is. But honestly, for those of us like, like myself, I've been a missionary for 20 years and we also have a group of people called vacationaries and vacationaries are the people who give missionaries a bad name. They're the ones who they have lots and lots of finances and they live in big houses. They have maids and all that kind of stuff. There can be a deception on the mission field because missionaries generally send out a newsletter once a month. Well, if you aren't sincere about what you're doing, it's very easy and very tempting to just go out for one day of that month, hand out a few pamphlets, get a couple pictures and put it in your newsletter and then just live on the money. Right. And so there are a category of missionaries that they are not living in any kind of danger at all. They're living on vacation mode. But right. yes, th those who are sincere, absolutely. Th there's a lot of danger and sickness and all oh, just all kinds of stuff. I would imagine that the um, health care that's available is not what we're used to. Vaccinations, access to vaccinations for what may, might be common there, but not common here. <laughs> yeah, my, my wife, she, both of my boys were born in Panama. And uh, one of the benefits was my first son, he cost without insurance. We've never had health insurance. He cost $5 for to have him in Panama. And our second one, they jacked up the prices. It was 50 for the <laughs> second one. But on the other hand of that, my wife also gave birth in a room with like 10 other women all at the same time and no painkillers, nothing. Wow. They just you just have the baby and you survive or you don't. And there's a lot, a lot of women who don't survive because wow. they don't have access to the medicine. Right. For a minute there, I thought, well, that's not too bad. And then you followed up with that. And I'm like, I'm out. I prefer to self-medicate whenever yeah. I'm overseas because it's safer a lot of times than going to the doctor. And then the language barrier. If you don't speak the language, how do you even read the medicine bottles or containers in the stores or understand a doctor who might be able to help you. There's a horrible story about that. When uh, our ministry first started taking teams, we take short-term mission trip teams overseas to Panama with us during the summer months. And our very first team that ever went with us had a group of youth and the youth pastor decided that it would be a fun game to play, kick the soccer ball as hard as you can at each other. And they thought it was funny. He kicked it hard at an eight-year-old boy and broke his arm. And it was the first time this boy had ever left the United States. The nearest hospital is an hour and a half away. So I had to drive him in my pickup truck down these mountains, swerving back and forth for an hour and a half. And the way that they, they don't have the same machinery and stuff. So the way that they check to see if the bone is broken or not is they would grab his clearly snapped in half arm and would lift it up and then just drop it back down on the table. And it was awful awful. I was with his mother and she was ready to punch the doctor. It was man, that boy. And he didn't know he was scared and they wouldn't let I'm a, I can be pretty intimidating in those. I get very protective because I mean, these are my, my family right. and church that are there and the doctors, they made her leave because they wanted him to just eight year old boy. Wow. And he doesn't speak a word of Spanish. Right. And I do, I'm fluent in Spanish. And so I just told them, I said, the, she left and I said, I am not going anywhere. I will stay here. Right. And they came in and these female doctors come in and these nurses come in and they're telling him eight-year-old boy telling him to take off all of his clothes. And I said, he and change in front of them. And I said, no, I said, you both get out of here. I will stay here and I'll 
turn i'll face the, the wall and he can change just to make sure that nobody else comes in because they when they see foreigners they think it's hilarious to put us in very embarrassing situations i know this is going to reflect badly on me but i am one of those christians who look for comfort I remember I felt the Lord was really tugging on my heart to receive him. And my argument was, I don't want to be a missionary because I like running water and I like heat. But then you look at a missionary who's laying down all of those things. Surely there's this beautiful payoff in exchange for those things, because I do know that when life gets hard, God is really beautiful. Not that he's not beautiful any other time, but when things get dark and things get quiet, he shines in such a unique way. What are some of the things that you know about God when it comes to pain and suffering in the context of being a missionary? In the United States, I would say one of the biggest deceptions, one of the biggest dangers in the church and in the Western church and developed nations like the United States and Canada is the doctrine of this concept that God's whole desire for you is for you to be happy, healthy, and wealthy. Because what happens is when difficulties do come, when sickness or disease or, or you don't get what you were asking God for happens or the husband leaves his pregnant wife, then all of a sudden people think, oh, well, God isn't real then. But if you go overseas to places like where I live in Panama and I have to hike for hours out into the mountains, and there are Christians there who are gathering together in these little mud huts and they have nothing. They have what they call the hungry month in Panama, the tribal people do, because they're migrant workers. There are months where there is no work just because of rainy season and dry season, all the stuff that happens overseas. And so they'll go a whole month where they can only eat one meal a day. And these Christians, for them, this doctrine and understanding in most of the world that we don't have in developed nations, and that is the doctrine of suffering, understanding that Jesus came and suffered. And I actually, I, I have a couple of verses. I won't read all of them just for time's sake, but like first Peter chapter four, 12 and 13, it says, beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing is happening to you, but rejoice to the extent, and this is the key part, that you partake in Christ's suffering, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. And I think that the big danger that we have in the Western world is we don't ever talk about the fact that Jesus suffered, and it is actually part of our calling as believers to suffer with him. Preachers here in the States, they don't talk about taking up your cross anymore, but that was a, a predominant teaching for all of the church. I think that in terms of as a missionary, not just myself, there are 100,000 registered missionaries in the world. They have a unique, many of them, a unique understanding because they have been in the States and they see the excesses, but then They'll go to somewhere like Nepal. These Christians, they can go to prison for three to six years just for going to church. And to get to church in a place where the police wouldn't come raid the place or find the place, I had to drive in a Jeep through Nepal for six hours. And there was one place to eat. It was a, a bus mechanic shop slash restaurant. And so you would walk outside and the mechanic is under the bus and he's working on a bus. I mean, this, this actually happened. Same man working on the bus. We walk into the restaurant. That same man gets up, goes inside the restaurant, 
and serves food. And in Nepal, they don't use utensils. So it's all served by hand, like literally grabbing food by your hand, doesn't wash his hands or anything. And the water is contaminated. So he gives you a salad. You can't eat the salad because he washed it with the contaminated water. And I, I didn't get sick, but my friend, my, the, the guy who travels with me, he got brutally sick from that and throwing up. And then we, we drive that six hours and then we have to get on top of one of those big yellow school buses and go for two hours through rivers and valleys. Then after that, we get to a mountain and we had to climb a mountain for an hour just to go to church. Church there was a week long, pretty much 24 seven worship and teaching is going on. And everyone there was risking prison, sickness. We use no utensils the whole time. We all, they would just put a pile of rice on the floor. There are no chairs, no tables. We all sit on the floor. And we all eat out of the same pile of rice and chicken with our hands. And so that there's a, a different concept of you, you don't sit there and think, well, God must not be real because I'm uncomfortable and I'm sick and I'm tired. You think, wow, what an honor to partake in the sufferings of Christ, to go through the things that Jesus went through and be able to identify with Jesus in those things. And so many Christians who are suffering today. So you're making the connection of the discomfort, part of God's discomfort. And the reward is partaking with these people and experiencing these people, giving them the gospel, sharing in their meal. Because meal sharing is very important in other cultures too, correct? Yes. With regard to your ministry, how do you come alongside these pastors and assist them in extreme situations? And what are some of the extreme situations? Right. So there, there are several different ways because we work in about a dozen different nations and they're all very, very different. For example, we work in Northern Iraq and in those circumstances that the people that we work with, they are ISIS survivors. And so what ISIS does, the way that they fund their military is they'll send their people into villages and sometimes cities if they can, and they will kidnap the majority of family members and leave one or two family members behind. And oftentimes those are Christians. They specifically target Christian towns and Christian villages because they're Muslims and they're extremists. This is one example that happened. There were two sisters and they both lived. It's very community in those, those kinds of cultures. And so they all live in the same neighborhood. ISIS came in and kidnapped a woman and her sister was left behind. The woman, when she was kidnapped, she was pregnant. And she didn't even know it. She had just gotten pregnant and ISIS didn't know it. They kidnapped her and they kept her for about a year. And of course she gave birth there in an ISIS camp and they keep them in cages kind of thing. And after she gave birth, they actually sent her home because the way that ISIS does things is they will take people and then they charge a certain amount of money for the family to buy them back. They don't kill them. They'll kill foreigners a lot of times because it's terrorism, but for their own people, the, the Kurdish or the Iraqi people, they don't usually kill them. They hold them hostage because that's how they get money. If they just keep killing people, people don't pay the ransom. Right. So they hold them for years and years and years as the family will slowly earn the money or raise the money and buy them back. So this woman, her family bought her back and they sent her home, but she had given birth. And so they kept the little girl. Wow. And the little girl was raised by ISIS for six years. So our team came in and there are other missionaries on the ground that we work with. And what they do is 
we often raise money and we provide food and toys and diapers and lots of things, computers if they need them for these refugees. And so whenever I was there in Iraq, they took us to these two sisters home. We went there because they live in a tent and they don't have a concrete floor. It's just a mud floor. And so our ministry went in and we provided a concrete floor for them. But while we were there, we heard about this little girl who, and they wanted $20,000 for her, which we're a small ministry. We don't have $20,000. There are two ways we come alongside people. One is we provide the materials, the practical things that we can do. But while we're there, the Bible talks about weeping with those who weep, mourning with those who mourn. So in those circumstances, sometimes there's nothing we can do and it's heartbreaking because you're there with brothers and sisters. And this is, this is a kidnapping. Like it's one thing to imagine this in Iraq, but imagine if this was someone in your church, someone that you're close to, that their child was kidnapped, right? What can you do? And so now in this particular case, and this is not always the case, she asked us to pray with her. So we prayed with her and prayed for God to give her daughter back. And about, I want to say it was a few days later, we went back to that house. And whenever we went in, there's a little girl playing there, a little six-year-old girl. And so we, the mother says, you'll never believe what happened. And I'm paraphrasing, but she said, after you all prayed, you left the next morning, we woke up, there was a knock on our door. We opened the door and there was my daughter. Don't know how she got there. She just was there. Wow. Don't know how she got away. Don't know if God just took her. We don't know what happened. Still don't know what happened. And so there are a lot, I mean, I've forgotten more than I can even count at this point, stories like that. That seems supernatural to me. Do you see a lot of the supernatural? Oh my goodness. Yes. All the tell, time. Tell me about some of those. Anything you can recall off the top of your head? Because I think we limit ourselves here in the United States to the supernatural. But I hear that it's quite prevalent. Yeah, all the time. Some of it's funny. There's one funny story. There was a man, he was dying of AIDS. And, and it doesn't sound funny when you start, but it is funny at the end. So there was a man who was dying of AIDS. And so his family members, and he's not a believer, he's an alcoholic, didn't believe anything about God at all. We, My wife and I were asked to go out and pray for him. And we, we drove two hours and then hike into the jungle to this little shanty shack in the middle of nowhere, just little banana trees and chickens running around. That's it. There's nothing else out there. And we got there and this man, you know, he's half drunk when we get there. And so we prayed for him and we pray for so many people. It's hard to, you know, when it's easy, when you do church, like once a week to kind of drum up emotions, but whenever it's your life, you just become Mm -hmm. so used to it that the emotional part is just out. This is just my life now. Right. And so we lay hands on this guy. We pray for him. And we left. I won't go into all this doctrine right now, but the Bible says that signs follow believers. So a lot of people make the mistake of they pray and they think that things are supposed to happen now, but signs generally signs follow believers. So a lot of times you'll pray and they don't actually manifest for, it could be weeks. And so we didn't see anything happen and he didn't want us there. So we left and uh, it was probably a month later, we get a message from him and he's mad at us because He had gone to the doctor and the AIDS was gone. Then he had gotten all these checkups and he was completely healed. And so the government took away the, in in those countries, they give people with AIDS money every month so that they won't go near people. Right. And so they, the government took his money away because he was doctor verified healed of AIDS and he had to go get a job and he was mad about it. (laughs) 
<laughs> so he had to go get a job. <laughs> yeah, it was so funny. Like, well, okay, you're going to survive now, I guess. Right. You're alive. You're going <laughs> to yeah. live. Eh, I yeah. got to get a job. <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty funny. <laughs> That's good. Anything else come to your mind as far as supernatural? Oh, yeah. I mean, I could, I honestly, I could go on, on and on about it uh, in terms of healing. There's so many different kinds of miracles, but there was one in particular, one that really impacted me personally was I, I was in this hospital in Guatemala. This was years ago. I want to say 10 years ago. I think it was the first time I ever saw anything like this personally with my own hands. I'd seen other people do something like this, but not God. I hadn't, God hadn't used me like this. And I was in this hospital in Guatemala. Same thing we always do. We were there. There are a lot of babies abandoned in Guatemala. And so we were bringing diapers and baby food because that kind of like here, people abandon babies at fire departments there. They leave them in hospitals. It's this very tiny room. And so there wasn't enough room for our whole team. So I just started walking through the hospital, praying and saying, God, what do you want me to do? Uh, we're here to do ministry. I can't even be in the room. And I walk into the main waiting room and in Gua Guatemalan people are small. And I'm a big white guy. I had people ask me, you're like, does it bother you that you get stared at everywhere? Cause I'm tall, I'm six two. Oh, so wow, I, yeah. I tower over most of the people and I'm 280 pounds. I'm a big guy, you know, everywhere I go, people are either scared of me or they're just staring <laughs> at me. So I walk into this waiting room and while I'm, I'm standing there, there's this man in the middle of the waiting room and he's sitting in a wheelchair and the doctor is there taking his temperature. And so I felt like God spoke to me and said, I, Okay. Now I try not to be irreverent here, but just, this is just how things are with me. And he, he hadn't walked in so long. He had these really tiny little chicken legs. Like they were, they, they had no muscle on them. And I felt like God spoke to me and said, I want you to go over. I want you to grab his little chicken legs and I want you to pray for him. And so I, I'm not embarrassed. I get stared at all the time. So it doesn't matter. So I go up to him and I said, excuse me, sir, can, uh, what, what are you doing in this chair? I said, are you here in the hospital because of that? And he said, no, I fell out of a tree like eight years ago and broke my back. And I haven't had feeling for my waist down ever since. And I'm here because I have a fever and the doctor is just checking me out. Can I pray for you? The doctor's just sort of doing his thing. He puts the thermometer in the man's mouth, starts taking the temperature. So I get on my knees. The guy says, yes, I get on my knees and I grab his little legs. I mean, like my hands and go all around his little tiny legs and I'll never forget this moment in my life because I'm not very good at flowery saying pretty prayers. I'm just not good at it. And so all I know is that the name of Jesus has power. That's all I know. Amen. And so all I said was in Jesus name. And whenever I said that his little chicken muscles started spasming in my hands and he screamed and then I screamed he was like, Oh, and I, and I was like, Oh my goodness. And we're both freaking out and I don't know what's happening. I said, what is, what is happening? And he said, he said, I feel blood flowing through my legs wow. and I haven't felt that in, in eight years. Wow. And the doctor is standing there and he starts freaking out because he has a thermometer in the man's mouth. And as he's standing there, the temperature was going down on the thermometer. And so the doctor grabs this man and he run, just runs away with the, into the back into the back area. And I'm standing there thinking, I don't know what just happened. I'm freaking out. I'm, I'm the big white guy. Am I going to get in trouble here? And yeah. so I stand there for a while. A few minutes go by and this other man comes out. And I don't know who he is. And he says to me in Spanish, he says, come with me. And I'm like, 
I'm going to jail. Like, I don't know where, where am I going? So I follow this guy. The doctor does come back out. I follow these guys. They take me into the back in, in the back of the hospital. There's this long, long room and they have me walk all the way down to the first room. And there's all these rows of, it's a hallway with all these doors and they're all hospital rooms, of course. And they, they open the door and, uh, the, the pastor, he turned out to be the chaplain for the, for the hospital. And the, the chaplain, he just sort of motions for me to go into the room. And I'm like, you, you go in the room. What do you want me to go in there for? And he says, all he says to me was go do in there what you just did outside out in the lobby. And so I, I'm so nervous. I don't know what to do. And I'm not very, I'm not very quick when it comes to things like this. I walk into this room and it was one of the funniest scenes I've ever seen in my life. It was an all women's room. And these are all Guatemalan women. So they have no idea what's happening when this big six, two white guy walks into their room. One of the women, she was like on pulleys cause she had been shot. There's so much gang violence in that area. Wow. She'd been shot. So she like had an arm up and a leg up. These women have no makeup on their hair is just, they're in these nightgowns and they're just in total shock and I don't know what to do. So I had a little Spanish Bible and I'm not very good at I'm not very good at memorizing Bible verses. Like I know what the Bible says. I read it. I've read through it many times, but right. I'm not good at memorization. And so the only verse I know is the verse we all know, John 3, 16. And the Bible is powerful no matter where you read from. Right. True. So I open it up and I didn't have a sermon or anything. I didn't have an angel speak to me and tell me what to None of that. And so I opened up the Bible and I just read that verse for God so loved the world, blah, blah, blah. And I'll tell you what, the presence of God came into that place like wow. an explosion. And all those wow. women start yelling. They're like, we need Jesus. We need Jesus. And they're like wow. trying to reach out and grab me. And so I got scared and I left. Right. <laughs> I walked out of the room and I said, there, I did my part. It's your turn now. You're right. And yeah, you're, it. you're the pastor. You know all the things to say. You go in there and do it. Yeah. And so they took me. I was there for hours and they took oh, me in God. every room in that, that whole part of the hospital. Wow. And I saw, I mean, a woman who had a pancake tumor. It looked like a, it looked like a pancake on top of her head. Right. And I prayed for her. And I mean, it shrank down right in my hands. Wow. It was mostly women for some reason, but they were all the, just all kinds of weird, gross things. I'd never experienced that before. And I eventually went to the, the room with the man uh, who had been in the wheelchair and uh, they had all these things connected to him because he could feel in his legs. And I actually got to see him again about two weeks later. We were there for about two months and he was walking. Really? He was completely healed. We've cleared out two, I want to say two hospitals now. Really? Uh, once in Guatemala and once in Panama that wow. we've done that with. Well, the other one was with a team of missionary students who had no experience. Right. Yeah, because it's all about the, the power of the Lord and his name not necessarily the person themselves. That's it. it. You know, we're all, we're all totally flawed. People like to pretend to be holier than they are and less human than they are, but we are all very, very human. And once we learn to get past that is mm -hmm. whenever God is, is able to start really moving. When you realize you're never going to earn it, it's not going to happen. That alone would make me come back again and again, just to see that move. Yeah, it is worth it. You shared a story about being in Turkey yes, and having a near-death experience because you were there sharing the gospel. What happened in that situation for you? I lived in Turkey for two years. Those were actually my first two years as a full-time missionary. I was 18 years old 
And it was illegal at that time, and I believe it still is, to openly evangelize in Turkey. So, you know, a lot of places they have drug labs, the illegal meth labs and that kind of stuff. Well, if you're a missionary, you have illegal Bible labs. And so wow. we we had offices where we would smuggle in thousands of Bibles and we would put because the Bible, it it can be confusing to people who've never read it. So we would put in little tracks that explain the gospel in a page or two and all that kind of stuff. And so every few months we would go out and do a massive Bible distribution where we would go out on the streets. We would all, it was a whole ordeal. We had to hire a boat that would secretly take us across the, the, uh, the Mediterranean there uh, from the Asian side of Turkey to the European side of Turkey. And then we would go out and we would set up all of these boxes and tables and we would hand out Bibles. And you always had to have lookouts because either the police would come or extremists would come or, or communists or a lot of communists in Turkey would come. And so we would have lookouts and we would just start handing out thousands and thousands of Bibles. So the particular time that you're speaking about, it was actually a New Year's Day outreach. And so it was actually my 19th birthday on that day. And so we're out there and we're handing out Bibles and it had actually gone smoother than usual. There is this man, and I will never forget this man because he had a ponytail and you don't usually see that on Turkish men because it's considered effeminate and that's just not something you see. So it was very odd to me. This man with a ponytail, he comes marching up to the table where there's a young woman. I say young, she was the same age as me. We were really close friends. Her job was to stand at that table and resupply Bibles to the people who were handing out Bibles out. And so he marches right up to the table. He picks up one of the Bibles and just looks at it and then puts it down and walks away. And it was, it was just very odd because you don't usually have that. I saw it, but didn't pay much attention to it because there's a lot of hostility. People, they, they'll take Bibles and throw them right in your face or they'll spit on you. They do all kinds of stuff to you. So he walks off. It was probably about half an hour later. He comes back, but he had, I want to say, 30 guys with him. And these were communists. These are not Muslim guys. They form these riots or these protest groups, whatever you want to call them, all the time when, you, when they realize Christians are doing things. So they come marching up and they surround this table. And the first thing they did was they flipped the table. And once they do that, chaos breaks out and a lot of other people join in. And they, I don't know how many there were. There were a lot of people mm. that just start swarming the place. They start beating all the missionaries up. And as missionaries in a nation like that, you have a contingency plan when something like that happens because you kind of expect it to happen eventually. And so everybody scatters and everyone is supposed to run and they're supposed to meet at this boat, uh, which is was supposed to take us back home. It was a safe place to go. Well, everybody scatters when this starts happening and all the chaos breaks out, except for myself, this other man, this other missionary who was a leader at the time. And then this, this young woman, the young woman is stuck at the table and they're all surrounding her. They're not doing anything to her, but they're, what they're doing is they try to rip up Bibles or throw them away. They do all kinds of stuff. And the other man who was a leader, he's getting just beat up. And so I see this happening and I I'm surrounded by all these guys. I see that there's, I, I, I could have gotten out, but I see my friend over there. She's stuck. And I'm like, this is, you, you don't want to be a woman and be in that situation. Like it's bad. It's bad enough for a guy, but for women in a Muslim culture, it's going to mm -hmm. be very, very bad. And so I'm bigger than most people. So I just start just pushing my way through and I'm just pushing all these little guys away, you know, and making my way to this friend of mine. 
And eventually they, these guys are, they knocked me down. And so I'm on the ground and it was so brief, but they knocked me down. And while this is happening, there are guys who had trash bags and they were filling up the trash bags with all the Bibles. Mm. So I managed to get up. And whenever I get up, the, the other man who had been getting beaten up, the other missionary, he had somehow, I didn't see it happen, but he somehow got up, got this young woman and they got away. But because I was on the ground, they didn't see me. They didn't know that I was still there. So whenever I get up, everyone, like all of these communist guys and myself all realize at the same time that I'm the only one left. And so in Arabic culture and in a lot of these Muslim cultures, they have kind of a stoning circle. It's like a death circle. And what they'll do is they form a circle around somebody who they think is guilty of a crime and they pick up stones. And then they, the, in extreme like official situations, like in Saudi Arabia and stuff, what they'll do is they'll bury the person up to their neck. Mm. And the belief is if you can get out of the hole and get out of the circle before you're stoned to death, that is God declaring you innocent. Of course, nobody does because you're right. buried up to your neck. Right. But in this case, it happened so fast that none of that happened. They, they formed the circle and they were going to kill me. And I knew that. And it was this moment where I knew I, I was, I remember I was praying and this goes back to how you talked about like, why do missionaries go back? Like why? But it's because in those moments, and it's not a, I don't know what the word is. It's not like a thrill seeking thing by any means at all. Cause I am a scaredy cat. I hate roller coasters. I, one of the things I am accused of the most that my leaders, they criticize me the most for is I'm, I will not confront anybody cause I hate confrontation, but regardless of people, there's this moment when you're in a situation like that, that you can't, it's this moment with God that is unlike any other moment you'll ever experience. So I'm standing there and I got all these guys and I'm thinking, this is it. They're going to kill me. And this isn't a joke because I mean, when I was there, they, they stabbed one of our missionaries 27 times and beheaded him. We were all arrested. Like we're all, we know death is there. Right. And so I was thinking like, this is it. I'm going to make this good. And because I, every, you know, whenever you get, when you get to die like that, people are going to, they're going to at least quote you at least somewhere. You're going to be on Facebook at least. Right. And so I was thinking there was no Facebook back then, but uh, you know, I was thinking like, I'll be in a book somewhere. Right. And so I'm thinking, I'm trying to, everything goes in slow motion. It really is like those movies where everything goes in slow motion. I'm thinking like something awesome. What's something awesome that I can say right before I die you know, like Steven, who's looking up and he's like, Lord, forgive yeah. that. Like, oh, what's something cool I can say? And they're, they're all chanting and screaming. And, and I remember ponytail guy is there and he steps in the middle of the circle with this other guy and they're all screaming at me. And I'm like, I, I heard God speak. And it was like, I, I very few times have I heard God speak like this. It, it was almost audible. And he told me, and this is my relationship with God. Some people want, I, I might not like this, but God said to me, he said, shut your mouth. And I remember I was standing there and I thought, no, I said, I'm going to say, I'm going to die. I'm going to say something awesome. We will talk about this in a minute. And Cause I just, my relationship, this is how my, I've been a Christian my whole life. My relationship, this is how my relationship with God is. It isn't an irreverence thing. It's a relationship thing. I gotcha. An intimacy with which he created you. Yes. Yeah. And so I remember 
I raised my hand, like, and it was just ridiculous. It's so embarrassing for me to tell this story now, but I raised my hand in defiance, you know, because I was 19. So I was like, this has got to be awesome. I got to do something awesome. So I raised my hands and I was going to yell something amazing. And instead it was like, God took over my mouth and I yelled, I don't speak Turkish. And whenever I yelled that everybody, you could just see collectively, cause they all were like, you know, they're raising their fists and shaking their fists and chanting at you, go home pig, all this stuff. And whenever I said that you could hear the collective sound of all of them dropping their arms by their sides and looking at each other, just, you could almost hear their thoughts. Like this guy is an idiot. Like he doesn't even know why he's here. <laughs> you just like, he's a tourist who got stuck in the middle of a circle. And so when that happened, it was, I personally, now my belief personally, the Bible talks about many times how God would put a spirit of confusion on people mm -hmm. in battles in the Old Testament. I honestly feel like God put a spirit of confusion on them when that happened, as ridiculous as it was, because they all had no idea what to do. And this police officer just walked out and grabbed me by the arm and just dragged me out of the circle and then just sort of pushed me and said, get out of here. Right. And that was it. And it, I wish that was the end of the story. And that part is, but it turned out that there were there were live news cameras there and they saw it. They saw me humiliate myself. And so for the next several, I remember I went to a staff meeting just a few days later and one of the women, one of the main leaders there, she comes up to me and she says, Alan, I was at a conference just yesterday and I was, I had to stay at this hotel and I walk into my hotel and on my bed is the newspaper with your big old fat face on the front page and it says, watch out, this foreigner is here to steal all the women. Oh. And, and she was like, what have you done? Right. <laughs> oh, no. It was so embarrassing. Oh, oh that's, that's, I don't know. I can't even put the pieces together with that. <laughs> you speak Turkish, but you're yelling, I don't speak Turkish. That's your parting words, but yet they weren't your parting words. And then you're accused of wanting to steal all the women. I know. I know. <laughs> I never had a Turkish girlfriend or anything. Really? Never. Didn't even get any phone calls from the front page article. I didn't. They made fun of me. I would walk down the street and people would yell at me. I don't speak Turkish. I still don't. I get it. how it would be embarrassing to you as it personally. Oh, the women thing? Well, that that is a very common thing in Muslim cultures because whenever ministries, Christian ministries try to start to gain any traction, the media anywhere the media manipulates but there the media manipulates against they either accuse people of being spies okay. or if they can't find any type of evidence of them what they consider to be evidence of being spies then because those cultures are very macho right like mm -hmm. men dominate the culture right. and so the the next step is to make it look like the foreigners are trying to steal the women because in those cultures the women don't really have a voice women are more like property right and so this, this concept of, oh, they're basically, they're trying to steal the women and corrupt, corrupt our people, corrupt our culture, corrupt our religion. Okay. That makes sense to me as to why they would put that label on you and discredit you in that way. Yeah. What do you think motivates the hearts of the people in these locations that would cause them to walk miles through rough terrain or weather conditions just to hear someone like yourself talk about the God of the Holy Bible? What motivates the people? Well, there is. So in Panama, whenever, whenever I first went there, these places that are, 
are out in the middle of nowhere. They're they're not just a group of people who are just sort of out there living happy. That like a lot of people they paint this picture of oh they're just living with all these banana trees and they're out eating natural fruits and all this. It's not how it is at all. They are almost one hundred percent. Actually, I would say 100%. I've never been in a place where this was not the case. They are controlled by usually witch doctors of some kind, shamans, witch doctors. And it is very dark and supernatural stuff happens all the time, like way more than you can imagine. Things that you can't even imagine that nobody would even believe if I shared them. Things happen out in those jungles and they're real. And so what happens is the first time I went to Panama out to these mountains, there was a, a blind man. He was a blind pastor. And his name is Aniceto. We're still friends. He's still a pastor up there. I walked up there for hours with one other, with a Norwegian guy. And we get up there and this blind pastor meets us up there. And whenever he meets us there, he starts to tell us this story. We're sitting down. We talk to him. We stayed at his house for several days. He tells us his story of how he had had, he had been sleeping. And now he, he's, he can't read. He doesn't know the Bible. He wasn't raised a Christian. He got saved in a completely supernatural way and didn't have any training at all. And he said that whenever he got saved and then later God called him and told him to be a pastor, he said, that's impossible. I'm blind. I can't be a pastor. And I I can't read. My wife can't read. None of us know what to do. And he said, and God showed me, and he's a blind man. He said, God showed me in a vision. He said, I saw two white foreigners walking up this mountain to my house. And God told me that those two men were going to help me to lead this church here. And so stories like that, they spread. But then there's the shamans and there's the witch doctors. They are so in tune with with, with the things that happen in the supernatural because one of them got saved. It is a full-on war when you get up there. They surround your camp with these shofars and their ram's horns and goat's horns, and they will blow horns all night long around your tent and curse you constantly. They, they pray in uh, demonic tongues mm. and they do this oh, for hours all night long. Wow. And we, we used to be scared of them because we didn't know what was happening. But what happens is when one, one of them got saved and they told us that they knew who we were because way before we ever even got there, when we were miles and miles away, they, taught, they saw two shafts of light coming toward them. Mm. And they knew that they were Christians and that that those people had something more powerful than they did. And so they feel threatened. So now what we do is when we go to those places and the witch doctors start showing up, we go out and we actually chase them away, like literally face to face, nose to nose with them. And we just say, you will bow to the name of Jesus and they will break Mm. people who aren't ready. They get sick. We had one guy, uh, he shook hands with a witch doctor and dropped dead. Wow. Yeah, because they have real power out there, but they only have power to people who are not in the gospel. I have a good friend of mine in Haiti. He's a pastor now, but his mother was one of the top voodoo priests to the president of Haiti. And he was being trained from childhood for that. Like he was deep, deep in it. And he met two Christians for the first time when he came to New York. Then he met two Christians. And he hated them. He didn't know why. He just hated them because they were Christians. And so he, uh, the the witching hour, two or three in the morning, right? He stayed up until two or three in the morning and he did all of his rituals, his witchcraft voodoo stuff. And he summoned two demons to go and attack 
these two Christians. He didn't know anything about Jesus. He, so he waits and these demons come back and manifest. And they said, we couldn't, we couldn't do anything. And it was the first time in his life that it didn't work. His voodoo didn't work. And he, he said, what are you talking about? And these demons said, we can't touch them. They are surrounded by angels all around them. We can't come near them. Mm-hmm. And for him, he said that was the first time in his entire life he had encountered anything more powerful than what he had. Right. And so he, he became a Christian right there. He said, why would I keep serving this darkness, this evil? So the reason people will walk, and I know it's a long roundabout answer to your question, but the reason that people will walk for miles and miles and miles is because they see the light. One of many dozens and dozens of true stories. You have a man who his daughter, a witch doctor, whose daughter is so demonized, she's tearing out her own hair and eating it. Wow. He doesn't know what to do because his own witchcraft is not working. Right. So he sees these lights coming, these Christians. He's so as he's still a father, he still loves his daughter. Right. So he will walk and he will come in and he'll be uncomfortable. If there's anything you can do, just like any parent, I'll do anything. So he brings us his daughter still worshiping the devil. And we lay our hands on his little girl and she immediately comes into a right mind, stops eating her hair and is completely healed mentally, emotionally on every level. So of course he realizes this is truth. And that word, it spreads, it spreads like fire. Mm. And people start getting saved. So I hope I hope it's okay for me to talk about this stuff. I didn't ask you kind of your oh, yeah. stance on this stuff, but that's powerful to me. That's life changing. Hmm. Clearly for that girl, it was life changing. Clearly for our witch doctor who decides, wait, my magic isn't working, but this is. Is there any confusion between what a voodoo doctor has power over and what God has power over when you see a voodoo doctor come to Christ? Is he just looking for different magic, or is he seeing wow? It depends on where you are. In a place like Panama, where it's a monotheistic culture already, they, in general, only believe in one God. So the transition is usually very smooth, and they almost always become pastors. And uh, because people who are drawn to that kind of thing, it's because they have a gift in them for leadership Mm -hmm. in spiritual areas. And so anytime you see someone who's drawn to the occult, it's because God put a natural gift in them that has been twisted. And so once they get out of that, they almost always become leaders. And the transition is usually very smooth. You have to t- you know, train them and teach them. But someone who's been in the occult for a long time and they've been practicing it, and, they, and I'm not talking like the cheesy, fake Hollywood stuff, like the real animal sacrifices kind of stuff. Right. When they've done that, they know how to operate. They know how to pray already. They know how to fast. They know how to seek whatever God it is they're seeking. And so it's very easy for them to hear from God mm-hmm. and to hear from the Holy Spirit. They're usually rough around the edges, but man, they, they grow faster than just about anybody. Now, if you're, if you're in a, a polytheistic culture like, like uh, India, where they have 1 billion yeah. gods or 100 right. million gods, that's far more difficult because they will usually just add Jesus to their pantheon of gods that they already mm-hmm. believe. And that's, that's much more complicated. Do you think that missionaries are a unique breed? Because I personally see it as a unique calling, but it could be my lack of understanding God, my lack of maturity of who God is in that context. Um, Can anyone be a missionary? So I would say that being a full-time, you move overseas missionary is a calling. I believe that, yes. 
you have to have a real passion. You have to have a call for it. But anyone, yes, can be a missionary in the sense of, I personally believe that every single Christian go on at least one short-term mission trip because they are life-changing for themselves. One of the saddest things I hear, and I hear it from a lot of churches, a lot of pastors, and they teach their congregation this, they will say, why should we waste $20,000 sending a group of 15 people to Panama when we could just give that $20,000 to the missionary? They don't understand how many legs they're cutting off of things, the, the damage that causes on so many levels. Because if you send your church on a mission trip, those 15 people will have experiences with God that they are not going to have back home. They are going to come back on fire for God, and that will be contagious. And the other thing that people don't realize about missionaries, most missionaries, they don't really care about the money. One of the biggest struggles is loneliness mm -hmm. and feeling alone and cut off. And having a team come down for a week or 10 days, that is such a boost to the missionaries. That is so important to keep them going, to keep them encouraged. My favorite part of being a missionary when I was down there was whenever my friends would come down. And by friends, I mean churches that would come to us every year. They would come once a year, every third week of July, and they would be there for, for seven days. We became very close friends. And for me, who's out there getting sick and hiking through mountains and watching my kids get sick and the stress of it all, I would far rather a church come down to serve and come down to hang out and come down to be friends. This church would bring me a box of chocolates and they would give me like $200. And uh, one time they brought a, a Nintendo Wii for my children. And those things for me were infinitely more valuable than giving me a few thousand dollars. So... I think that anybody can be a missionary, but it takes a certain kind of person to be able to go and live in a, a place like that for a long period of time. Yeah, because we serve the God of relationships. So that connection of having people come and not just send money, the paper, there is great value in that sort of connection and support. This is just a tip for anyone who listens to this. If you're going on a mission trip, go with the mentality of serving the missionaries there which everyone says that, but usually what people mean by that is I'm going to go and I'm going to have a sort of church camp experience where the missionaries, they're going to have every hour of my schedule full and I'm just going to be busy the whole time. And that's what people think makes a good mission trip. From a missionary's perspective, of course we'll do that. We love that. But you know what? If you want to serve the missionaries, you know what would be even better is go there and offer to babysit their kids and send them out for a night for, for dinner or something and tell them, hey, don't pack the schedule because for the missionaries, that means from dawn to dusk, they're cooking, they're cleaning, they're translating. My wife and I, it's usually just my wife and I leading these teams of 15, 20 people. And we get up at four in the morning to make 100 pancakes and then we have to serve it. Then we have to clean everything. And then I go out and I translate for eight, eight hours. Mm. And so for the missionaries, I tell them, don't make my schedule full. Let's do a few days of ministry, but I just want to hang out with you. Let's just sit in the living room and drink coffee and just talk, talk about what God is doing in your life. I'll say, Hey, go out to the nicest restaurant. Where do you go on your anniversary? Go there. And I'm going to just hang out here. I'm going to order pizza and I'm going to watch Dora the Explorer with your kids or whatever. And we do that. And that, that is what blesses these missionaries you renew them to turn around and serve their community. So you may be 
turning missionary work on its ear there, but yeah. <laughs> for a greater purpose to equip your field missionaries. What is it about God for you personally that inspires you in the missionary field? What about his character or his nature that inspires you? What inspires me about God is that he, regardless of what happens, he's always there. And I'm actually going, I've been going through a really emotionally difficult time just in this past year, not even because of COVID, but because I have several missionary friends and mentors who have fallen into sin. People that I really respected and admired, people that were pillars in my life mm. on the mission field falling into sin or just collapsing on themselves or burning out. Right. I have never felt more, I don't want to use the word lonely, but but standing alone hmm. in the, than I have in these past few months. And I was sitting there with God and I was like, what is happening? And all I heard was God, he said, let God be true and every man a liar. Right. And that that hit me, he is there. And that's what I feel when I go on these mission trips, when I'm living overseas, this bond where it's me and Jesus against the world and wherever he's going, if he goes to hell, I will go to the gates of hell with him. A misconception that people have is they, they consider being overseas as being more spiritual, but the truth is it's not. I've been here in the States for a year now because of COVID, because I can't go back to Panama. And you know what God is works just as much here as he does there. It looks different. He functions in a different way because God adapts to the needs of the culture that he is in, but he's always there. No matter what, when my kids are sick, he is there. When my, when my friends die, he is there. And as painful as it is, I can sit down at any point and I can just say, Jesus, would you please just sit with me for a bit? Mm -hmm. And even right now, even as I say that, like I can feel the shift. I feel mm -hmm. the change. And so that's what motivates me. People do think that missionaries are in third world countries or other territories doing religious work or charitable work. But yet here in this context, we can still be missionaries in our Absolutely. everyday lives. I love so many things about the Lord, but for him to include us, to invite us to experience him and to know him in the context of what he's up to. And to experience him heal someone or using your voice or your hands to uh, minister to somebody that the Lord has left me amazed many times in my life over including me on some of his adventures, because I do call him the God of adventure. Yes, You're looking he is. proof of that as far as a missionary goes. When you think about a missionary here today, living in the United States, doing everyday life, how can we be a missionary? What are some of the things we need to keep at the forefront of our mind in order to be a missionary? Oh my goodness. There's so many. I, every year I do a speaking tour here in the States and I drive across and my favorite part is not the speaking in churches and conferences part. My favorite part is showing up at the gas station. And we went to Walmart just the other day. And there's a guy, a Latino guy standing on the side of the road with a sign that says, I'm out of gas trying to get home. Can you please help? I want to know what's going on in people's lives. I'm very nosy and I'm very unashamed of the fact that I'm very nosy. And so I pulled over and my, my wife's Panamanian. We're both fluent in Spanish. And we walked up to him. And we're like, dude, what are you doing out here? Because you, of course, want to make sure it's real. You don't want to be unwise. Right. But you go up and you're like, hey, what's going on, man? I don't know if it was real or not, but he had his wife and kids in a, in a little truck. 
And he said, we came up here because we thought there was going to be work and we weren't able to get a job. So we're just trying to go back down south. And so we, we gave him a few bucks and we talked to him and we prayed for him. Do you know what people want? People want a hug. They want someone to sit with them and just say, tell me what's going on in your life. And people, they love to talk about themselves. You don't even have to do most talking. You just say, what's going on in your life? Because something is going to be going on. And then they talk about it. And you say, man, I'm so sorry. Hey, can I pray for you about that? Right. It's so easy. So for me, it's like if you're working in an assembly line for eight hours a day with the guy next to you or the girl next to you, just say, hey, how's your life going? Right. What's going on there? You don't have to super spiritualize it and make it awkward and be like, shall the, shall the Lord speak to you something today into thy life? No, it's goofy religious people. You know, it's a relationship with Jesus. Right. And it's a relationship with human beings. Hey, what's going on, man? How you doing? How's it going? Oh, it's going. That's usually what people say. Why is it just going? Why isn't it awesome right now? Right. And then that's it. It's, so, it's just conversations with people. And you're right. It's that simplistic, but I think we make it that hard. And I'm not sure if it's because we're moving more to um, tech and we're not really making personal connections mm -hmm. or at least they're more challenging, but you're right. It's relationship. It's connection. It's just being human, just mm -hmm. being interested. I think curiosity, you said nosy, but I think curiosity serves you well and a passion for people or a love for the Lord, which then translates to genuine interest in people. From your experience, what is God's heart for missionaries? What do you know about God's heart for missionaries? I think that God sees missionaries as the frontline soldiers. They are the arrows that he shoots mm -hmm. into the enemy camp. Right. They, they are the ones he just sets on fire, puts in the bow and just launches them. Right. And because if you look at just a map of the world and the way the church is set up, which I teach church history and, uh, and missions and all that kind of stuff in our, in our training that we do. And if you look at a map, you see concentrated groups of Christians in the United States and Canada and parts of Europe, although that's declining pretty rapidly. And then you have these pockets of Christians in unreached nations. And that's where missionaries have just been launched out mm. and they land in these places and they, they make a little, a little light in that area. And then it slowly expands and it takes a long time. A lot of times they're killed or mm. they die or they burn out. And I, that's how I see it. That's what I think that God sees us as. With regard to your peers who are also doing charitable works for other countries, foreign countries, who inspires you? Oh man. So who inspires me? Honestly, the people that inspire me are people that nobody would really know. The people that inspire me the most right now are the missionaries in Iraq hmm. who we've been friends for 20 years. And every day there are bombs going off a mile or two from them. And every single day they're with their children risking their lives, risking everything because of their love for the people. I am inspired by people who don't seek fame and fortune and they just want Jesus and they're willing to do anything from their passion. Now, in terms of people who have gone before us, the person who inspired me to be a missionary other than my grandmother was Jim Elliott. My mom gave me the journal of Jim Elliott whenever I was a teenager. I recommend anybody read that book. Because if you want to know what goes on inside the mind of a missionary and the way that they think and their goofy stuff, he was a very serious, 
man, but he was speared to death along with his people. There's a movie called End of the Spear about his life and the other missionaries who were martyred with him. And he was the reason I ended up going to tribal people. When the word talks about no man will have an excuse for not being aware of God, how does that play into missionary work? How is it that no man will have a, an excuse? Is it because that God speaks through their situations, their life? I, I've been asked this a lot. I think every missionary probably gets asked this. I will say a couple of things, and it's a tricky answer because it's an answer that may not be very satisfying to some people. Gotcha. And that's okay. I, I don't claim to have every answer, but I will say that most missionaries who have worked with tribal people, especially, they will tell you, uh, first of all, every tribal culture in the world, there is not one that doesn't have a story of Noah's Ark. They all have it. So they all know. Now it's different. Noah will have different names, but the, the point being that every culture has a story of God. Every single one of them. Atheists only exist in developed nations. They do not exist. There's no tribe out there. There is no people group that does not believe in a God of some kind. Mm. You don't have to convince a tribal person that God exists. You just have to convince him that your God is more powerful than his God. Right. Okay. And so the, the reason there are no excuses is because everyone knows that there is a God. When I was in Turkey, this would happen to us all the time, continues to happen all the time. Uh, these Muslims who had grown up never, they don't know anything about Jesus. The only thing they know about Christians are the crusades, that Christians came in and killed everybody and raped the women and, and all that, the whole history behind that. And they hate Christians, but they are sincere. And that is the key, is sincerity. That's why Paul was saved when he was Saul. Because he said that even though he was killing Christians and imprisoning Christians, God saved him because he was sincere. And so there, there are people who are sincere, these Muslims, sincere Muslims, they want truth, they want God. God reveals himself to them at least once a week. We would have a knock on the door and we would go open the door and they would be a person full Muslim garb. And they would say, I was praying in my mosque or wherever or usually it's a dream. I had a dream last night and a man in white appeared to me. And he said that his name was Jesus and that he gave me your address and told me to come talk to you because you would tell me the truth about eternal life. More Muslims get saved that way than through evangelism. In missions, there's a term called the man of peace. When you go into a tribe, you always look for the man of peace first. If you're starting a ministry anywhere Look, it doesn't matter if you're in Dallas, Texas, if you want to do ministry on the streets, what you do is you find the man of peace. There is one everywhere. There is never a place that does not have one. There is always a man of peace or a woman of peace. You go and you find that person and the Holy Spirit will lead you to that person. And that is the sincere person. That is the person who is seeking truth and they are open to hearing truth. Those people are in every tribe, every culture, every nation. And event and God will reveal himself to them. The Bible is so clear. If you seek me with all of your heart, you will find me. It doesn't say if you've got all of your doctrines in a row or you know everything or you have a Bible, it just says, if you seek me, you'll find me. There was a woman in North Korea. She escaped. So she was able to tell her story. There are missionaries in South Korea. Awesome, awesome missionaries uh, with the voice of the martyrs. And they have these balloons 
and they have a little tiny hole in the bottom corner. They're square and they have the whole book of Mark on them in, in Korean. They'll study the weather patterns. And when the wind is blowing strong into North Korea, they'll fill up thousands of those balloons and they have a little hole in the corner. So the helium leaks out over time yeah. and they'll launch thousands of them into North Korea. And those balloons fall. They're like tracks. They fall all over the country. And so there was this woman who had been raised in North Korea, atheist, worshiping their dictator her whole life, but she sincerely was seeking God. And she said, God, I know, I know that there has to be a real God. Please show yourself to me. She was walking down the street. One of those balloons is in the mud and she finds it and she can't read. So she takes it home and gets one of her children, one of the boys, because they only teach the men to read, gets one of the men, the boys to read to her. And it's the book of Mark and she gets saved and her family gets saved. So that's what I believe that verse is talking about. God always reveals himself to sincere people. Since you were, would you say 19 years old? And you think about some of these dark places that you have been or seen situations, but what is something about God's nature or his character or something that he revealed to you, something beautiful about himself in this dark place? If you let God direct your path, if you let him be the light to your feet, he will always take you in the right direction. And I learned that in those early years because I am ter literally terrible with directions. I had gone to Southern Turkey and I, I uh, was going to help a guy. I'm not... I'm just trying to keep it, condense the story. So I went down there. It was a whole mess. It was a, it was a vacationary and mm. I didn't realize this. And he kicked me out of his house because I confronted him on stuff that was going on. He kicked me out of his house at night and it was a holiday. So I couldn't get on a bus at that point as a missionary support was $200 a month. Right. My first two years, that's what I lived on was $200 wow. a month. And so I end up going to the airport and I call my, my leader at the time. Back then, the cell phones there were prepaid. And so I only had a couple minutes left on my phone. And I called him and said, hey, I'm going to be arriving like one in the morning. Can you please pick me up? And he said, yeah, sure. No problem, man. I'll be there. So get on the plane, fly back. When I land, nobody's there. And it turns out he had fallen asleep and forgot to come pick me up. I had like $20. My phone is out of money. The few cents that I have trying to make phone calls, nobody's picking up because he's asleep. So I go outside and there are a bunch of taxi drivers out there. And, and I said, I know to get home to where I need to go is about $40. I have 20. Will you please just be merciful and take me? And they all laugh and they're like, you know, what kind of Yabanji. Yabanji is the Arabic or Turkish word for gringo. Mm. Now, what kind of gringo doesn't have the $40? You're all rich, right? And so I said, well, I'm not rich. This is all I've got. So just take me as far as you're willing to go. And we'll just go from there. The airport's on the European side of Turkey. I had to go to the Asian side where I live. And I'm in this taxi. And the whole time, I'm, I'm just really nervous, scared about what's going to happen. I'm praying right. like, God, I need you to come through for me here, buddy. Right. I, need some, I need you to touch this, this heathen's heart and have him take me all the way home. Right. And I'm just thinking like, you know, I'm trying to trying to have faith, trying to do the faith thing and be like, thank you, Lord. They teach you that Paul name it and claim it thing where you're supposed to just say something and it's just going to happen for you because right. you decided it would. And so I'm like, thank you, God, that you're going to touch this heathen man's heart and you're going to get me all the way home. And, and we get across the bridge, the meter hits 20 
And he pulls over on the other side of the bridge, the Asian side, and he just stops. And he's like, that's $20. And I remember thinking like, that's a good one, God. That's good. That's funny. I'm going to get out. And he's going to say, just kid and get back in because I'm a white guy here in the middle of the night in Turkey. And so I, I'm like slowly getting out and he just took the money and I got my bag and he just drove off. And I'm like, God, what is the, what's going on? Why didn't you do what I asked you to? Because, you know, he does whatever he wants, not what we want. (laughs) And and so I'm there and I'm really nervous because the middle of night, I'm terrible at direction. So I don't even know how to get home. And I have no money at all. Just my giant duffel bag that I carried around. So I decide I'm just going to walk straight. That is my philosophy now in life. If I don't know what to do, I tell everybody, if you don't know what to do, just start walking (laughs) because God will work it out. The Bible says go. So you have to go. You can't just stay. You have to go. And then God will work it out. And that's in any region, not physically going. And I said, uh, so I just started walking straight. I walked for a good 20 minutes. I don't know how long it was. Didn't know where it was going or anything. And this car, now this is going to be unbelievable. It's going to be hard to believe. Um, but this is just what happened. So this white car pulls up and parks next to me. The middle of the night. There's nobody else. And this, the window rolls down and there's a guy in like a white disco suit in the, in the front seat. This is 20 years ago. He looks at me. He's like, Hey, are you going home? And I said, yes, I am. And he said, well, get in, I'll take you. And so I thought to myself at the moment, I was like, my mother told me not to get in the car with strangers, but in this particular case, I will probably not make it home. So I get in the car with him. Then we just talked, you know, he's just asking like, how do you like Turkey, all this normal stuff. We get where he drops me off at my apartment because I'm living in the middle of Istanbul. Get out of the car. He just drives off. Like that was it. But I, all of a sudden it hit me in Turkey. When you're a missionary in a nation like Turkey, you are trained to uh, be very discreet because the police are always watching you. They monitor your calls. You can't receive mail. They monitor your emails, all that kind of stuff. And so you never tell people where you live. You never tell taxis where you live. You always tell them to drop you off a few blocks away. Right. And then you walk the rest of the way just for safety so they don't know who you are. And I had never told him where I lived. I had never told him where to go. And he had taken me right to my door. Wow. And to this day, I have no idea how that happened. And he just drove off. Now, personally, I believe he was an angel. Yeah. Um, but that, that's what I believe because I, I didn't tell him where I lived. So I don't know how he got me there. Right. And then he drove off. And- that there was something there. And I had multiple situations like that, that happened over the course of just a few months of where I would get, I got lost, physically lost and didn't know how to get home. And these wild things would happen like that. And I would get home and God taught me it had become concrete in my life that no matter what happens, even if he doesn't answer my prayer to change the heathen's heart, he is going to get me where I need to go one way or another. He will get me there. And so, yeah, that's a great reminder that we can lay our petitions before the Lord, our needs, our wants, our desires, but maybe not limit him on how we get there. That's right. Although, you know, we show up with expectations and whatnot, very human, but I guess that's also part of God saying, keep your eyes on me. That's right. Thank you so much, Alan. I appreciate your time. I appreciate your energy that you've poured into this, and I look forward to learning more about your ministry. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was such an honor. Take care. You too. 
thank you for your time and for sharing this experience with my guest. I hope you have found encouragement for today and a deeper revelation of God's heart in the midst of pain and suffering. We'd love to have you as a subscriber to Finding God in Our Pain so that you can be connected with all my guests as they share their personal experiences and professional knowledge about pain and suffering. And because this podcast is a division of the website, A Life of Thrive, for more information and the various ways you can connect with us, please visit the website, alifeofthrive.com. I look forward to sharing more transparent stories from the hearts of women who intimately know what it means to have their world flipped upside down, their authentic struggle to make sense of it, and what recovery and healing looks like. Till then, sweet woman, remember you are not alone and that God speaks the most beautiful things in the dark.